My name is Harold Schechter. I'm author of the newly published book Maniac, which is about the Bath school disaster of 1927, the worst school massacre in U.S. history and the deadliest act of domestic terrorism before Timothy McVeigh. It has been largely forgotten for unknown reasons. And my book um, both explores the crime and the reason that it lapsed into obscurity. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Harold Schechter joins us. He is an American true crime writer who specializes in serial killers. Schechter also wrote the bestseller, Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunnis, Butcher of Men. Schechter received his Ph.D. in American literature from the State University of New York at Buffalo. He's a professor emeritus at Queens College, married to the poet Kamiko Hahn. His latest book is called Maniac, The Bath School Disaster and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer. I just said you wrote about serial killers, but is it true that now mass murderers, like the man that you describe in Maniac, have supplanted serial killers in our minds as the most dangerous human beings. Absolutely. Uh, That's a subject that has been of interest to me. Not too long ago, for example, Samuel Little, an African-American serial killer who um, was apparently guilty of, I think, about 80 murders, maybe more, died Uh, and his passing was barely noted in the press. Uh, Our cultural attention, as you say, has turned away from the serial killer and has now become focused on the mass murderer. I think that's uh, happened ever since Columbine, and and actually think um, 9-11 had a lot to do with that. You know, we seem much more, um, I would even say, obsessed with the figure of the human time bomb who might detonate in a public place and kill a bunch of innocent victims uh, than we are of some serial sex murderer that, uh, you you know, a person might Mm. be unfortunate enough to run into in a singles bar. Yeah. And it it seems we focus, or maybe I'm just speaking personally, on the um, number of people killed. You know, when you hear... That's one of the first things I think of when we hear about a shooting, let's say the Las Vegas shooting or the uh, the nightclub in, in Florida. How many died? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the amount of the carnage that seems to be focused yeah. on. I think, unfortunately, that's true. I mean, you know, we've kind of reached the point where if there's a mass murder uh, or an attempted mass murder, uh, that only claims, you know, three or four victims, you know, we sometimes shrug at that. I mean, that's a sad commentary on the world we live in at the time, but uh, absolutely. It takes a mm. lot to get our attention. Well, let's talk about what happened in Bath, Michigan, back in 1927. Uh, being an upstate New Yorker, I was interested to find that Bath, Michigan is in a county named for DeWitt Clinton, the former governor, the governor of New York, who uh, pushed the Erie Canal because of what the canal did for that part of Michigan. And Bath itself, which is some kind of a settlement, it's not really a village, maybe you can tell us what it, what, what it is, uh, it was also named for 
um, a community in in upstate New York. Yeah. What was what was the gist of the of the crime? I've asked you probably two or three things there, so just respond to whatever you want to. The gist of the crime was so Bath is a small uh, farming community in Michigan, located a short car ride away from Lansing, uh, and uh, in. In, in the 1920s, in the late 1920s, there was a movement uh, in various rural areas of our country to replace the old one-room schoolhouse system with what they called consolidated schools, uh, mm -hmm. more modern schools that would teach kids from elementary through high school and that would afford them the kind of education that they felt, you know, their, their big city rivals, you almost had to say, we're getting. Uh, so in Bath, there was a vote to construct this. There was some opposition to it because it would uh, mean higher property taxes to pay for the school. But uh, the community voted to construct it. And they had this uh, handsome, very modern, new consolidated school uh, that was the pride of the community. One of the townspeople was a highly respected uh, member of the community, a farmer named Andrew Kehoe. Kehoe had been in opposition uh, to the uh, construction of the consolidated school, uh, again, partly for financial reasons. He didn't want to have his taxes increased, especially since he had no children. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he was actually voted on to the school board. He had held several town offices, but sometime in the spring of 1927, Kehoe underwent uh, these major financial reversals. He was in deep financial trouble. Um, there were troubles in his home. His wife was repeatedly uh, hospitalized uh, for serious illnesses, which also added to his financial burden. And, uh, you know, he became unraveled. He became mentally unraveled. And he started to blame his fellow townspeople for all of his woes and decided in the way that mass murderers often do, that he was, well, his life, his world was essentially finished. He was going to end it, but he was at the same time going to take revenge on the world and all the people he blamed for his own troubles. Mm. So in the spring uh, mm. of 1927, he spent weeks uh, sneaking into the school at night. He had 24-7 access to it because he was a school board member and rigged the basement of the school with several hundred pounds of World War I surplus dynamite, which was mm -hmm. readily available to farmers at the time. It was being sold by the government uh, in the form of a low-grade explosive called pyrotol. And Kehoe had acquired about 500 pounds of this stuff. And he rigged the basement of the school um, with hundreds of pounds of this explosive. Uh, he had a, a mechanical bent, so he made a couple of timers and set it to go off, set the explosives to go off on the last day of school, which was May 18th, 1927. Mm. Uh, so about 9 o'clock that morning, after all the children had gathered in their classrooms, the timers went off. Fortunately, uh, because of some faulty wiring, much of the explosives did not detonate. If they had, he would have effectively killed every child in the community. But he did destroy one entire wing of the school and killed 38 school children and several teachers. 
Then uh, he loaded up his Ford pickup with more dynamite and shrapnel, drove it down to the scene, called over a few of what we would now call first responders, and detonated his truck and blew up uh, blew up the, the, the first responders and himself. So wow. the Bath School disaster was not only, it was the deadliest school massacre in U.S. history, it was the worst uh, act of domestic terrorism before Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City, and it was the first suicide car bombing, and the only one, I think, that claimed any victims. I mean, there was that recent one in Nashville, but nobody got hurt. So it was a uh, terrorism, school massacre, suicide car bombing all rolled into one. Just to focus on the uh, suicide bombing, wasn't he talking to the school superintendent when he set off the explosives? Yeah, no, the school superintendent who, you know, was kind of his bet noir. He had had a lot of issues with the school superintendent over um, uh, when he was a school board member um, for a variety of issues that, that I explored in my book. So, yeah, he was one of the people uh, that he was determined to kill. And it was one of the men that he called over when he drove his uh, explosive packed truck down into down to the scene of the explosion. And I recall you write that the school superintendent's body was shredded by the explosion. It was shredded and his own body was shredded. Uh, you know, they, he was, they were both pretty much unrecognizable except for certain scraps of clothing uh, that they had, they had been wearing uh, and that they could, that were recognized by other people. Did Andrew Kehoe, did I read he, he also killed his wife that day or no? Yeah, before he uh, set off all these explosions, he had murdered his wife. Uh, he had also uh, set all of his um, all the, his own house and all of the outbuildings on his farmstead uh, on fire. He wired together the legs of his horses so that they would burn to death. Uh, he had stripped the bases of these young trees he had planted so they had died. You know, this is it was this act of absolutely apocalyptic violence. He was not only going to take this dreadful revenge on the townspeople that he blamed for his failures, he was just going to destroy the entire world as far as he was concerned. His case been studied, it must have been, um, psych psychologically. I mean, what do psychologists or psychiatrists say was going on here with him? Well, at the time, uh, there wasn't much psychological insight into the workings of the minds of criminals like him. I mean, we know now much more about uh, the motivations and the psychology of mass murderers, uh, which at the time was not a term that was even in existence. You know, they would tend to be called things like wholesale murderers. Um, you know, but we know that uh, unlike serial murder, which is a completely different criminal and psychological phenomenon, most mass murderers, uh, and they're not universally, but they're mostly men, you know, have reached a point in their lives where their lives have become totally unraveled and, you know, they're feeling uh, that their worlds have come to an end. Mass murder is generally a suicidal act. These people are, you know, know their life is over, want their lives to be over, 
uh, have nothing more to live for, but they're going to go out with a bang. I mean, they're going to uh, take as many people with them, especially if they can. You know, sometimes it's just strangers, but often it's people who they hold responsible for all of their all of their failures. So, um, you know, they suffer uh, as Kehoe did from what psychologists call malignant narcissism. You know, everything is about them, and when their world un- comes undone, they're going to just go out and kill as many people as they can. Uh, and they're also, as Kehoe was, what criminologists have come to call injustice collectors. You know, they brood over every slight and every insult. And again, they hold these people responsible and want them to die along with themselves. You know, Kehoe um, ran a couple of times for town offices and he was defeated. Uh, You know, he held people like the superintendent, whose name was Hoyk, uh, responsible for his own financial failures because Hoyk was you know, this great promoter of the consolidated school. And uh, and Kehoe felt that this increase in his taxes to pay for the school had been a major contributing factor in his own uh, bankruptcy and so on and so forth. So, And uh, we're talking with Dr. Harold Schechter. He's author of the book Maniac, The Bath School Disaster, and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer. And Maniac was what they called... A keyhole, did they not in the yeah. press? Yes. Uh, and this yeah. was a uh, that was one of the things. Yeah. This was a big story when it happened. Um, let's find out why. Maybe we have never heard of this. I mean, I never heard of this or uh, story until uh, getting the information on on your book. Uh, but it did get coverage around the country, did it not? Yes, it did. It was front page news. Not only in this country, but uh, internationally, uh, Adolf Hitler uh, sent uh, a letter of condolence to the community. Um, you know, it was covered in Europe, it was covered in Australia, uh, but it was only covered very, very briefly because just a couple of days after it happened, uh, Charles Lindbergh made his world-changing flight solo across the Atlantic from New York to Paris which was an event as momentous in its day as the moon landing four decades later. And uh, a lot of news, including the Bath School disaster, was completely displaced from the news media. The day after the Bath School disaster occurred, it was the lead front-page story in the New York Times. A couple of days Hmm. later, the first five five pages of the New York Times were devoted entirely to Lindbergh. And, uh, you know, and, and there was no more reporting on the on the uh, on the bath case. So that was a, a very important reason that it, uh, you know, was so quickly consigned to obscurity. You uh, spend time in the book uh, with the lead up to Lindbergh's flight. Right. I mean, there's no connection yeah. directly between the two events, but they were connected. You know, that was something that I struggled a bit with in writing the book. I I knew that, you know, some readers might be puzzled as to why Lindbergh uh, and the lead up to his flight were suddenly being introduced into the narrative. Uh, But I thought that, um, you know, when they when I 
pulled it all together <laughs> towards, you know, towards the end of the book. They would uh, forgive me for what seemed like a digression. Let me just ask you more about uh, Andrew Keyhole and his and his background. Um, he was a school board um, treasurer, was a farmer. Also, he was for a while the handyman in that school, wasn't he? Was another reason that he had yeah. access to it? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, Kehoe, as I said, was very mechanically inclined. He was always doing favors for neighbors, repairing, you know, different kinds of apparatus for them. You know, they 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 knew that if they were faced with some kind of mechanical problem that they couldn't solve themselves, uh, they could uh, rely on Kehoe to help them out. But yeah, at one point, as I recall, um, the, there was an infestation of bees in the in the school that Kehoe somehow managed to contrive something to control, and uh, he, you know, he was asked to serve as a handyman. So yeah, it was one of the ways in which he he got access to it. When he was young, his stepmother burned and died, kind of in his his presence. It's often the case. Uh, I have discovered in my researches into various sensational crimes that, uh, you know, when a, when a horrible murder is committed by somebody, you know, there'll, there'll, there'll often be these incidents in the, in the criminal's past, you know, that suddenly take on this very, very sinister light, you know, and, and often they don't, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not to blame for those crimes, but, you know, it's very, very natural to look for kind of precursors to these atrocities. So in the case of Kehoe, yeah, he had a young stepmother uh, and um, a, a gas-fueled a gas fueled oven, a gasoline-fueled oven had just been installed in the kitchen. You know, these were uh, advertised as these state-of-the-art appliances. Uh, that would make life easy for the housewife. You know, they wouldn't have to collect wood and start a wood fire and the stove and so on and so forth. But they were also incredibly dangerous. You know, I was doing research into the number of, uh, just the number of horrible accidents that occurred. Uh, As you can imagine, you know, they would have these tanks of gasoline over the stove, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. to feed the stove. Anyway, um, yeah, she died. Uh, in, in a gasoline uh, explosion, she suffered horrible burns. But there are all these stories, and again, these were all, you know, kind of uh, retrospective stories uh, that, um, you know, that Tiho, who was at home at the time, um, but he was he was a grown man then, uh, had had uh, had somehow come in and seen her, uh, seen her in flames, and just pretty much let her burn to death, done nothing. But it's hard to know how much credence to give to those stories. Mm-hmm. Now, the uh, Lindbergh flight uh, obscured the, the Bath School disaster, certainly around the world. But what about that? I mean, what, what has been? I mean, that's still a well-known event. I just looked up on if you got Bath, Michigan, that's one of the top things they list. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it obviously had a, a lasting and devastating uh, impact on the community. You know, in the immediate aftermath of the crime, as is so often the case with the sites of sensational murders, uh, it became this kind of morbid tourist attraction. Um, you know, much to the much to the disgust and indignation of the community. 
um, you know, such a small, such a small community that everybody knew somebody, either everybody was somebody who had suffered a horrific loss or, you know, knew somebody was friends or family members with somebody who did. So yeah, the impact in Bath was enormous. If you go to Bath today, there's a, a, a memorial to the disaster in a little park. Uh, and, um, you know, you you can, as I did, take a kind of heartbreaking stroll through the local cemetery and see one little tombstone after another of all these children who died. You know, and each gravestone is, of course, inscribed with the same date of death. So, yeah, it's never been forgotten in Bath. Today, when there are mass murders, we're always asking, why, why, why did this happen? What can we do not to have this happen again? I'm curious if, because of your uh, reputation as an author of of true crime books about serial killers and now about mass murder, do people ask you? You know, to some extent, well, first of all, what I would tell them is, you know, there have always been people who suffer from that kind of psychology. Uh, you know, even before the Bath murder, you know, I've, I've researched cases uh, where there were what we would now call mass murders. I mean, there were, you know, there would be people who bore a grudge against their townspeople, their cases, and you know, but they would, you know, take their shotguns and start blasting away at some people. Um, so, you know, I think it's a kind of uh, psychopathology uh, that has always been with us and probably always will be with us. One advantage I guess we have nowadays is that um, through social media, which is obviously much more closely monitored by law enforcement, you know, some of these people do uh, put up red flags uh, and and we know that some potential mass murders have been thwarted by that means. Um, but unfortunately, it's also all too common uh, that uh, in the case of both serial killers and mass murderers, you know, they don't necessarily seem to their friends and neighbors and acquaintances and, you know, co-workers like the kind of person who would commit such an act. Um, you know, they might know that this person is carries grudges or has descended into depression, um, but it's often just sort of beyond the imagination of uh, what I will call, with quotes around it, normal people, um, you know, that somebody they know would be capable of that kind of atrocity. Why is it that you have pursued this line of work, you know, writing about true crime and now mass murder? It's a little bit of a complex question, but but I, I think it has a lot to do with the age in which I grew up. I'm a baby boomer uh, of now advanced years, um, right. you know. But when I was growing up in the '50s, uh, you know, the culture was steeped in pop culture about monsters. Uh, you know, I watched you know all these creature features on TV, and you know, would go every Saturday to kitty matinees of monster movies and there are all these horror comic books and so on so i've always been interested in horror and uh you know as i as i grew older and, and began to make the study of literature my profession you know i became very interested in why uh 
uh, people need stories about monsters from a very early age. Uh, and, and, you know, why we need horror stories. Uh, it's one of the reasons, again, my area of specialization as a professor was, you know, the gothic fiction of the mid-19th century, Poe and Hawthorne and Melville and so on. So my, my interest in horror eventually led me to the discovery that my two favorite horror movies, and this is going back 30 years or so, Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre had both been inspired by the same actual true life case, which was that of a, a Midwestern farmer named Edward Gein, uh, who uh, was basically, I mean, he, he killed two women, but he was basically a necrophile um, in an attempt to resurrect his long dead mother, uh, whom he was unnatural, unnaturally attached to had been digging up the corpses of middle-aged women and bringing them back to his farmhouse and dissecting them. Signs of Lambs also ultimately made use of that case in the figure of Buffalo Bill because Ed Gein fashioned a skin suit out of the skin of his victim, out of, of these corpses. Mm. Anyway, uh, that discovery was very interesting to me, and it led me to write my first true crime book, uh, book called Deviant, and one thing led to another. And before I knew it, you know, I pretty much pictured my career as being, you know, writing scholarly articles on Nathaniel Hawthorne short stories uh, for <laughs> academic journals. Um, right. But, you know, before I knew it, I was uh, writing true crime books. Do you have a, a new project in the works? I do, actually. One I'm very excited about. Uh, I am collaborating uh, with one of our nation's greatest comic book artists, uh, a gentleman named Eric Powell, on a graphic novel um, based on one of the early cases that I wrote about. So it's a new medium for me, uh, and uh, I'm very, very excited about it. Hmm. Well, one of the thing that struck me about the, this book was you'd think you know, but you don't know. And I think, well, in the 1920s, oh, it's the Roaring Twenties and yada yada, but there were like it wasn't a great decade for farmers. You you write, yeah. uh, and th there were, uh, and then the school. It seems like such a strange thing to lead to a mass murder, but the, the school consolidation business. I mean, <laughs> who knew? Yeah, I, I myself. You know, it's one of the reasons I like you know, writing these historical books is I learned a lot about the time periods myself. I had no idea uh, that, um, you know, in, in effect, the Depression started way before the Wall Street crash for a lot of Midwestern and, and other farmers. Uh, you know, they had done booming business during the Great War because none of the European countries, you know, could grow their own crops. But once the war ended, that market started to dry up. So a lot of them, uh, and many of them who had taken out large loans and expanded their farms, suddenly found themselves in, uh, you know, severe economic distress, among them Kehoe. So, yeah, that was a very fascinating fact to me. You know, as far as the, cons and I, I didn't really know anything about the consolidated school movement, which was, you know, not limited to Michigan. It was widespread. You know, clearly, you know, there were, there were many people in different communities who opposed the construction of consolidated schools. You know, these, these were farming communities. Uh, there were a lot of uh, residents there who felt 
you know, that they had gotten a perfectly fine education uh, in the Little Red Schoolhouse. They had walked a mile mm-hmm. to, you know, they right. also felt, you know, that their own kids were probably going to grow up to be farmers or farm wives. So why do they have to have the kinds of fancy education that city kids did? So Kehoe wasn't alone in that. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't a, a sufficient explanation for why he finally cracked. It was one contributing mm-hmm. factor. Harold Schechter's latest book is Maniac, The Bath School Disaster and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer. Again, Harold Schechter, the book is called Maniac. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.